The fate of Judah's monarchy has never been more perilous. David may have been promised an unending line of heirs to his throne, but the current king is a tiny, defenceless infant. The child's grandmother is the daughter of Jezebel, Israel's homicidal, God-hating queen. Ahalia is very much her mother's daughter, and destroying the house of David appears to be item one on her to-do list. All her son's male heirs must die, and she sets about her grisly task with the cool-headedness of a psychopath. For David's line to survive will need an extraordinary intervention and an exceptional act of bravery. My name is Chas Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 88, The Hidden Child. I absolutely love this part of the Bible. To be fair, every book I've covered so far on this journey has become my new favourite. But the second book of Kings contains some absolutely show-stopping stories. What I love about this one is that it centres around the incredible bravery of a woman who few outside of Old Testament nerds have even heard of. Yet her actions secure the survival of David's bloodline, a line believed by the Bible's writers to culminate in the birth of Jesus. For those of you new to the podcast, this is a weekly day trip into every chapter and verse of what is fondly known as the good book. And I do treat it as a book. Other podcasts will help you meditate on it or expound on how the Bible's teaching can be incorporated into daily life. We're just here for the story. And in that story, a rogue army commander in Israel called Jehu has just killed both his own king, Jehoram, and Judah's king, Ahaziah, in a single day. King Ahaziah of Judah's sudden and unexpected death leaves his infant son, Joash, as rightful ruler of Judah. Side note, I don't normally sound like this. I have some kind of flu, so hopefully I'll get to the end in one piece. Let's see how we go. of Judah's sudden and unexpected death leaves his infant son Joash as rightful ruler of Judah. The boy's grandmother, however, has other plans. Athaliah is the daughter of Israel's queen Jezebel, and so she has big boots to fill. Her first act on hearing that her son Ahaziah has been killed is to go on a murderous rampage, killing every one of his male relations. There might be any number of reasons for this. Her loyalty may still be to the house of Ahab. Jezebel was married to King Ahab of Israel, and Athaliah might be annihilating the house of David as payback for Jehu's attack on her own dynasty. The queen might equally be so determined to rule herself that she clears any other pretenders out of the way, including her own blood relations. Athaliah's attack on David's dynasty might be because she is as opposed to God as Jezebel was, and she is demonstrating her zeal for the pagan deity Baal. She may even be hoping to ingratiate herself with Israel's new king Jehu by killing her own sons. The boys are descendants of Ahab, a man who Jehu detests. Or she may actually just be a psychopath. (laughs) 
however, Athalia fails to kill all the male heirs. Unbeknownst to the queen, Ahaziah's sister Jehosheba has spirited away the infant king Joash and keeps him hidden in the Jerusalem temple for an astonishing six years. One of the Bible's appallingly unsung female heroes, Jehosheba provides a nurse for the boy and keeps him out of harm's way, ensuring that at least one direct descendant of David remains alive. This is an incredible act of bravery by Jehosheba. The consequences of her plot being discovered would be catastrophic, not just for her, but for the nation of Israel. For six years, the future of the kingdom and the entire dynasty of David rests on the will, perseverance and courage of a single teenage girl. Eventually, a devout priest, Jehoiada, decides that it is time for Joash to claim the throne that is rightfully his. As the young king remains the only living relative of his father, King Ahaziah, his survival is essential if David's line is to continue. Royal protection needs to be stepped up, and Jehoiada splits security into two groups. All the major army commanders, palace guards and non-Jewish mercenaries in Jerusalem who are on duty during the Sabbath are to guard the area around the royal palace, while those coming off duty on the Sabbath are to form a human defensive cordon around the child in the temple and have orders to kill anyone who approaches this ring of steel. It's unlikely that the men will know why they are gathering at the temple, and none will be aware that one of Ahaziah's sons has survived Athaliah's slaughter. It's hard to imagine their astonishment when Jehoiada brings out the young boy who is destined to be Judah's next king. The guards in the temple are given weapons from the stash amassed by David. Once his improvised security force has been armed, the priest proclaims Joash king, places a crown on his head and gives him a copy of the law. Oil is poured on the child's head and everyone present cheers and applauds loudly. The noise alerts Athalia that something is amiss and she hurries to the temple, possibly for the first time in her life. There is a carnival atmosphere when she arrives. A child wearing a crown is surrounded by trumpeters while a large and boisterous crowd celebrates. Realising that the game is up, the queen tears her clothes in fury, shouting that her opponents are all guilty of treason. It's a rich irony given the number of heirs to Judah's throne Athalia had to kill to make way for her own rule. Not willing to defile the temple with an assassination, Jehoiada the priest orders his men to pursue Athalia to the royal palace, where she is killed. With the queen dead and the king still a boy, Jehoiada seizes the opportunity to place God-worship front and foremost in Judah. He makes a covenant where the people promise to serve God in return for divine protection, and where the people accept that Joash is God's chosen king. With newfound zeal, Judah's people smash the temple of Baal, which Athalia has built in Jerusalem, and kill its priest. This is the only reference to a temple to Baal in Jerusalem in the Bible, and its remains have yet to be discovered. 
Like the head of the Secret Service organising a presidential walkabout, Jehoiada stations guards at the temple, then surrounds the young king with armed personnel while he brings him to the palace. According to the writer, the nation is euphoric that Athalia has been deposed and the city remains calm, suggesting little residual support for the queen. The witch is dead and it's a bright new dawn for Judah. And so, for a brief golden age in the early 9th century BC, both Israel and Judah are ruled by godly kings. While Jehu's faith is an anomaly in Israel, Judah does even better. Forming a bubble of godliness towards the end of Judah's monarchy, Joash, Amaziah, Azariah and Jotham rule benignly between 836 and 742 BC. Thanks to ascending Judah's throne at such a young age, Joash rules his kingdom for 40 years, and the second book of Kings tells its readers that, while he is under the guidance of Jehoiada the priest, his reign meets with God's approval. However, as an adult, the king fails to remove pagan shrines from his kingdom, nor does he put an end to people worshipping there, but he does make a concerted effort to renovate the temple in Jerusalem. Joash orders his priests to collect all the money that is in the temple treasuries and use it to repair the fabric of the building. The structure possibly hasn't been touched in the hundred or so years since it was built. The project fails and a few years pass with no work actually being done. The priests either can't or won't roll their sleeves up to get the refurbishment underway. Despite the lack of progress, Joash remains determined to restore God's house to something resembling its former glory. He summons Jehoiada and orders that no more money be collected for a project which has thus far gone nowhere. The priests agree to this but excuse themselves from the restoration as it's clearly beyond their ability to project manage. One reason for the priest's reticence to spend money on repairs is that income might have been low after the godless rule of Athalia. As such, the priests need to use the little money that does come in to live on rather than pay for what they see as non-essential repairs. Jehoiada introduces a strong box made from a wooden chest with a hole bored into the lid into which any money can be inserted, possibly inventing the money box as he does so. All donations and other offerings brought to the temple are placed in the box. Once it is full, Joash's secretary counts it with Jehoiada and places it in bags. These are handed to the supervisors who have taken on management of the repairs now that the priests have backed off. These men in turn use the money to pay the artisans who build, chisel and carve. The donations also buy wood and stone and pay for all the other expenses needed to fix the place up. The writer explains that the money isn't used to replace any of the lost silver and gold temple treasures, but that it is all diverted into construction work. The approach of Joash and Jehoiada appears to be to trust their workers and to assume that they will repay this trust with honesty and reliability. To emphasise this, readers are told that no accounting paperwork is needed because everyone involved acts with absolute integrity. The priests are not left out of pocket during the works. Any money brought into the temple guilt or sin offerings goes straight to them. 
These are the donations brought to the temple from people who live too far away to bring animals to sacrifice, but who feel that they need to make it up to God for their imperfect behaviour. Just as the work is being completed, Aram's king Hazael begins to throw his weight around. Aram is a neighbouring nation with whom Judah has long been hostile. After attacking the Philistine stronghold of Gath, Hazael turns his attention to Jerusalem. Evidently not wanting a showdown, Joash offloads some of the temple treasures dedicated by his forefathers. To these he adds his own gifts, as well as all the silver and gold remaining in the temple and palace treasuries. The payment prevents an attack, and Hazael returns to Aram with his haul. Shockingly for a king of Judah, Joash is assassinated by three mutinous officials, although no motive for the attack is given. The men clearly don't want to rule instead of Joash, and the king's son Amaziah is placed on the nation's throne. After Jehu's death, Israel's spiritual revival ends. Jehu's son Jehoahaz shares none of his father's religious beliefs and reverts straight back to the old pagan-worshipping ways of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the freestyling rebel who took ten of Israel's tribes and became their king, leaving Judah and Benjamin to form the new kingdom of Judah. While Judah kept hold of the Jerusalem temple, Jeroboam set up worship sites of his own to prevent his people heading back to Judah. From this point on in the second book of Kings, all godless kings of Israel are compared to Jeroboam. Readers are told that Israel is constantly under the thumb of the kingdom of Aram as a result of its own king's willingness to embrace pagan gods. All is not lost, however, as Jehoahaz does finally consult God to see what he should do. Apparently impressed that his king is asking his advice, God is described as sending a deliverer, similar to the heroes who regularly saved the day back in the time of the judges. The book doesn't describe what this deliverer does or who he or she is, but the Aramaeans are driven safely back across the border. Jehoahaz's spiritual epiphany appears to have been an anomaly in his otherwise pagan reign. For his people, life goes back to normal as they continue to worship at the golden calf set up by Jeroboam in the towns of Bethel and Dan and fail to remove an Asherah pole in the city of Samaria. Readers are told that Israel's army has been ruined and the king is left with just 10 chariots and 10,000 soldiers. Unlike several of his predecessors, Jehoahaz dies peacefully and is succeeded by his son, the similar-sounding Jehoash. Jehoash is a loose canon who thinks that worshipping pagan gods is appropriate for a nation believed to have been founded by God. The second book of Kings can find nothing good to say about him and Jehoash is only interesting because his life coincides with Elisha's death. He wages war with his sudden neighbour Amaziah of Judah and this, as well as all the other high and low points in his life, are of course recorded in the sadly no longer extant book of the Annals of the Kings of Israel. By now, Elisha is a national institution and though not seemingly a believer, Jehoash is distraught when he hears that the prophet is sick. 
he visits the holy man and weeps openly, telling him that he is like the chariots and horsemen of Israel, a testimony to how powerful a force he feels Elijah has been to national security. The sick prophet comforts Jehoash by telling him to take six arrows and fetch his bow. He then places his hands on the king's hands as if transferring some kind of power to them and tells the king to shoot one of the arrows out of a window facing east. The arrow, he tells the king, symbolises an emphatic defeat of the kingdom of Aram which lies to the east of Israel. The prophet then orders Jehoash to strike the ground with the remaining arrows and yells at him when he only does this three times. The king should have carried on bashing his arrows against the floor and his lacklustre effort means that Israel will only defeat Aram three times rather than completely annihilate its enemy. After intervening miraculously for kings and commoners alike, it's time for Elisha to make his final appearance in the Bible. Being one of Israel's greatest prophets, the holy man's passing is far from uneventful. His death appears unworthy of any further elaboration. The book tells readers that he simply dies and is buried. A far cry from the elaborate send-off prepared for Elijah, who vanished into the skies aboard a chariot made from fire. However, it is what happens after his death that is seen as worthy of inclusion in the Bible. Readers are told that each spring, marauding Moabites form raiding parties and cross the border into Israel. One of these raids happens during a funeral, and the men burying their loved one have to improvise and quickly throw the body into Elisha's tomb. As soon as the dead man's body touches the prophet's bones, he comes back to life and gets up. As deaths go, Elisha's is still quite an anticlimax, especially as the prophet is one of the most miraculous characters in the entire Bible. Still, the book moves on after his final post-mortem miracle and describes how Hazael continues to harangue Jehoash's country. However, the writer describes how God keeps a benign eye on Israel. This appears to be simply because he promised the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that he would look after their people. Readers are told that this is why, up until the time of writing, God has failed to wipe the nation out completely. Historians believe that the books of Kings were written during the time of the Babylonian exile in the 5th or 6th century BC when the Jews saw themselves and their nation as down but definitely not out. When Hazael dies, he is succeeded by his son, Ben-Hadad III. A less able warrior than his father, Aram's new king sees his country take several thumpings from Jehoash, who succeeds in recapturing several Israelite towns that Hazael had taken from him. The Book of Kings love affair with the letters A and J continues with the arrival of Joash's son Amaziah on the throne of Judah. This is a new golden age for the nation. While its kings are no angels, they do maintain public worship and place God front and central to their reigns. The question is, will it last? And having come perilously close to extinction, will David's bloodline survive? Plus, how will either nation cope now that both guiding lights of godliness, Elijah and Elisha, are dead? 
Will they drift ever closer to the edge of a disastrous cataract, or will a new hope come to rescue them? They don't call it the greatest story ever told for no reason, and my advice is to keep listening. Produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover artist by Lisa Goff. Please do send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com. You can follow us on Twitter. And if you'd like to download the first five books of the Bible in book form, head to Amazon where you can find Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible. Thanks for listening. See you next time.